Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast and to our thousands of listeners around the world. I'm Jeremy Pound, the magazine's deputy editor, and with me in the studio today are managing editor Rebecca Franks and reviews editor Michael Beek. Hello. Hello. So today it's the turn of the January issue, January 2020 that is of course. As usual, the issue is packed with features, news, interviews and over 100 reviews. So anyway, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, as ever, it's been a busy month in the classical music world, isn't it always? Um, And we've all brought along just one news story each that's recently caught our eye, Um, but you'll find plenty more in our January issue. So we're going to start off with you, Michael. What's been catching your your eye in the news? Well, what's caught my eye and my ears were the uh, Royal Philharmonic Society Awards, uh, which took place a few weeks ago. We were in attendance. Did we enjoy it, everyone? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, very, very good much so. evening, I thought. Yeah, absolutely, me too. And as usual, it was a real highlight of, of the classical calendar and they, they bestowed 12 awards. Uh, top of the list was their gold medal winner. It was the Russian composer Sofia Gubadlina, uh, who was in, in attendance. Uh, other awards went to Chineke for the new Game Changer Award for the work that they're doing. Um, Tansy Davis won the Chamber Scale Composition Award uh, and uh, Rebecca Saunders won a Composition Award for Large Scale Composition. So that was two great wins. Uh, the Ensemble Award went to Aurora orchestra who have been doing uh, wonderful things uh, in concert uh, in recent years and various programs for you know growing audiences and the like um it was a very very jolly evening and uh, it was a great great lineup of winners we sponsored uh, the conductor award and that went to the brilliant uh, mirga grajanita tila of the cbso yes it was a very vibrant awards ceremony this year i'd say i'm i've been going to this to the ceremony now for 15 years and i have to say when i first started going it was actually as dull as ditch water it was not a <laughs> it wasn't something you kind of look forward to in the calendar particularly where they've really kind of picked up in recent years and this year i think was the was the best of the lot I really enjoyed um, the performances as they, yes. they had as well. They had three performers there. Um, they had a brass quartet playing some Mendelssohn very nimbly. And they had the, the Hermes Ensemble uh, doing Meredith Monk. And actually, I thought that was interesting because they were nominated, but they didn't actually win. And I really mm-hmm. liked the fact that they celebrated all the people who had been shortlisted as well, because actually that's such a huge achievement um, it in itself. So I really liked that sort of inclusive feel that they had created. And then we had some um, high from the Castalian String Quartet as well. Oh, um, I loved that. They were great. And I actually heard them a few years ago in Banff in Canada in a string quartet competition. Um, and they came second or third. I can't quite remember now. But it was really lovely to hear them again sort of a bit further along on their, on their path. Mm. With, all, with all the winners this year, you, you really felt that there was this feeling that they all had something new to offer, that there was kind of they're taking classical music places. They weren't just being honoured because they'd been there mm. and someone wanted to give them a prize. You actually felt that there was a real purpose to the mm. to the ceremony, I felt. Definitely, mm. definitely. I was sat next to uh, two members of the Castellian uh, 
quartet and they were genuinely shocked that they won. They were so happy. Were they? Really surprised. So it's great that you, you really don't know until they, they sort of open the envelope, as it were. And just as a follow-up, we've had some other awards announcements um, for the, well, it used to be called the British Composer Awards, but now the IVA Composers Awards. And we'll be reporting on that in the February issue. But uh, just a couple that caught my eye. A Lifetime Achievement Award went to the composer Erica Fox, who we interviewed a few issues right. ago. Um, a disc of her music's come out on NMC and she's someone who's not really been in the spotlight and is now getting a bit chance a bit later in her life to really be in the spotlight. Nice. Um, Anna Meredith uh, won the Innovation Award and Gavin Higgins won the Orchestral Award for the Book of Miracles, which was a trombone concerto. Mm, excellent. Well, briefly going back to the RPS Awards, I'm sure that someone who must have won an RPS Award of some sort in the past was the conductor Maris Janssens. Now, my new story, sadly, is, of course, he recently died at the age of 76 um, and the world lost one of his most adored conductors, I think it's fair to say. Um, he was well known for, above all, Mahler, Tchaikovsky, Richard Strauss. Those are kind of certainly my favourites of his sort of recordings and his performances, which I remember most. But he did a lot more than that. Um, and he was very, very popular. He His first major post was, was um, principal conductor of the Os Oslo Philharmonic. And he did, similarly to what... Um, Simon Rattle did with the CBSOs that he kind of really brought them into the spotlight, improved standards beyond all measure and kind of gave Norway a, an orchestra to be really proud of. Um, and then, of course, he moved on from there to other posts, including the Concertgebouw and also also the Bayerische Rundfunks in Germany, which is the orchestra he was still with when he died. He'll be much missed. Mm. I remember the first time I heard him, I was actually, um, it was when I was at university and I worked for a summer as a steward at the proms, which is... Uh, Great job to do. Definitely recommend it. You hear so much fantastic music. And he conducted Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 4 with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. And it was just the way he kind of whipped up the finale and the excitement that he created was just incredible. Um, really, really electrifying. Absolutely. And what a recorded legacy as well. Endless recordings, you know, coming coming to, into the office as well for review. And mm. uh, yeah. I think that's what Rebecca says kind of really puts it nicely because although you do associate him with good taste and sort of immaculately observed performances, his capacity for, for excitement was like nothing else, mm. kind of really building up the attention. Actually, we're going to hear in just a couple of minutes. I just want to relate my most strange um, incident with Maris Janssen's as a phone interview of all things. And it was when we were doing a piece about Mahler and I had a booked phone interview with him, which I was doing from home. And I hadn't realised um, that for some reason our old landline at our old house wouldn't allow calls to Russia and he lived in St. Petersburg. <laughs> so I had to interview him on my mobile phone but the only place I could get a decent um, reception on mobile phone was at the end of the garden <laughs> and it was pouring down with rain. Oh, and so I stood at the end of our garden in the rain talking about Marla 2 with uh, <laughs> the Russian conductor. I got some very strange looks from our neighbours. Did you tell him or did you maintain I professional... Made, I made professional <laughs> contact throughout. Maybe now built a shed at the end of the garden just in case that happens again. Exactly. <laughs> now, anyway, um, uh, I was mentioning uh, my favourite... Uh, do you have a favourite recording, by the way? Well, I think, chances. I mean, there are so many to choose from. Mm, I mean, any Tchaikovsky, mm -hmm. and I actually did really love, uh, there was an opera recording of Queen of Spades with the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra a few years ago, which I really loved. But really any of the big kind of symphonic repertoire. Definitely. Michael? I'd definitely go for Mahler, probably uh, number two with the Bavarian. 
Yes, for me, a real favourite was um, he did a Mahler one. It was a live performance with a Concertgebouw back in, I think it was about 2007, 2008, which is absolutely stunning. I still play very regularly today. However, the the one actually, the track I'm going to play now very briefly is... um, it's a bit of the final movement of Mahler's third symphony, which he actually recorded this with the Oslo Philharmonic a while back, but it's actually just been released on disc by the C-Max label. And I thought this magnificent end to this wonderful symphony is kind of a good way to say farewell to Maris in general. So there we go. That was the, the late, great Maris Janssens. But sadly, he wasn't the only major conducting name to have died last month. Rebecca, tell us a little bit more about another. Yes, um, very sad to say farewell to uh, Stephen Clearbury, Sir Stephen Clearbury, um, of, well, he'd been at King's College, Cambridge, directing the choir there for um, a, a good number of decades. And sadly, he recently passed away. Um, on a personal note, I actually studied at, at King's. And so, um, and he taught me in the first year, he taught uh, counterpoint. We learned how to write in the Palestrina style and studied fugues. And he was always a very, um, very measured, very calm, very precise um when you were going in there sort of flapping, thinking, I don't know how to write this fugue, you would always be able to bring clarity to the situation in this this, um, incredible way. And really, as well, the work that he was doing with the choir... Sort of hard to you no know, hard to fathom really that you can really take it for granted the amount of work that goes into keeping a choir like that singing you know however many services pretty much every day of the week apart from a Monday and um, you know they would come in with the choir with the the new choral scholars and the choristers at the beginning of the year and it might sound a particular way and by the end of the year it would probably sound like a completely different choir and he had this real ability to to um, get everybody singing together and to keep them maintained really high standards. So very sorry to, to hear this news. Definitely. And really sad after we've been celebrating the 100 years of Nine Lessons and Carols at the end of last year and then his retirement and so soon afterwards. Mm. Mm. And one thing which I think links both Maris Janssens and Stephen Clearbury is that both of them were both absolute gentlemen with the mm. press. They were all, whenever you interviewed them, they would give their time willingly. They would actually listen to the questions you're asking and do their best to answer them as, as fully as they could. That's very true. A pair true. of absolute gents. Yeah. Right. So on to slightly cheerier things. Rebecca, tell us about a first. So I have brought news of the first full-length main stage work by a woman in to be performed at the Vienna State Opera in its 150-year history. And it has just had its premiere. It was by the composer Olga Neuwirth, and the opera was called Orlando, and it was based on Virginia Woolf's novel of the same name, written in 1928, which is this remarkable book which uh, sort of time travels, and its protagonist starts off as a man and then becomes a woman, and it takes it right through from Elizabethan England up into the 1920s. And according to Fiona Maddox for The Observer, who went over 
um, to see the premiere, um, she said, yes, there were a few walkouts, but a solid 10 minutes of cheering at the end. Um, seems like it has gone very successfully, Great. really well. Um, and it sounded like a completely fascinating work, actually, really um, making the most of that time travel to be able to kind of draw on musical influences throughout the ages in an interesting way and actually taking it forward. I think it takes it right up to the present day. Um, so sort of diverges a bit from the book. But yeah, it sounds like a really interesting moment, landmark moment. Oh, Did stuff. Fiona elaborate at all on what the walkouts were about? Just because it was atonal or? Uh, she just says there's a predictable handful of booers. So right. I don't know whether that's just... She says the capacity audience engaged attentively. So it sounds like, for the most part, yeah, most part positive, maybe with just a few discontented people. And more importantly, is there any news of further productions by women composers in the pipeline at Vienna, or we're we going to have to wait a little longer for that? Yeah, I don't know whether we're going to have to wait another 150 years well, or not. not. <laughs> I mean, potentially. I mean, hopefully we're in a, a different era. But when Ethel Smyth's uh, Der Walt was performed at the New York Metropolitan Opera in 1903. It's taken until very recent times for the second opera by a woman composer to be performed there, which was Kaya Sariajo's Le Mour de Loin. So who knows? We'll yeah. just have to see, won't we? <laughs> Let's move on then to this month's magazine. This month's magazine. Before we start talking about the January issue... Let's have a little reminder to not forget our website at classical-music.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Plus we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And if you fancy subscribing to our print edition, we have a special discount for our wonderful podcast listeners. All of you can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25.15. You can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash musicpodcast. Right, let's get on to what's in the January issue. Let's start off right at the very front of the magazine with a little clip from this month's cover CD. So, Rebecca, what was that on our cover CD? That was the Allegro from Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 23 in A Major, K488. And that was played by soloist Elizabeth Browse with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra and conductor Holly Matheson. And that uh, kicks off our cover CD this month, which actually features uh, several of the BBC Radio 3 New Generation Artists, uh, which um, it's their 20th anniversary celebration this year. So we have a really lovely disc of Mozart and Schubert uh, to mark that occasion. Um, and yes, that's free with this month's magazine. Excellent. And who else is on the front cover this month? Well, we have uh, a violinist who I think people will recognise, Nicola Benedetti. And we have this fantastic feature, an interview by uh, Richard Morrison. And so the violinist, 
very much still following her sort of starry career as a, a high-profile soloist, uh, playing brilliantly in a lot of the, of the world's concert halls. But she also has this other, I don't know how she has time in the day, to be honest, but she has this incredible project which she um, is really kicking off this year. She has launched the Benedetti Foundation, which is an educational initiative, and it's going to have six weekend sessions um, across the country next year, in twenty or this year, in 2020, and it's sort of been road tested a bit in 2019. She's really passionate about the power of music um, and the importance of having it in people's lives, especially in in children's lives. And really, that's what she um, spends the piece piece talking about. Mm. And it's great that, you know, she's actually doing something. And, you know, lots of musicians sort of talk the talk, but not many sort of have the time maybe or, or have the sort of, you know, inclination to actually do something with it and she's really you know going great guns with this what i think is actually really interesting in the piece is that despite the fact she's doing all this outreach work and kind of investing so much of her time in it she makes it very clear that that doesn't mean she's stopped as a concert violinist and she mm. she runs down the various concertos she's playing in the space amazing. of a couple of months <laughs> how on earth did, where does she get the energy yeah. from it's sort of it's very impressive. I don't think she can sleep. <laughs> <laughs> when you factor in all the travelling as well, it's just extraordinary. So. Yeah. And also I thought it was so interesting. So she's 32 now, but she says that this is something that she really has been thinking about and mulling over and has been very important to her since she was um, a teenager, actually. And, I mean, it was kind of interesting because she won BBC Young Musician of the Year, but then actually she did take a bit of time to do... She, she always wants to do things sort of on her own terms yes. and to have thought about them, to be doing them the right way or the way that she believes in. Um, and so I thought that was kind of a very interesting thread that sort of ran through the piece as well. Mm. It'll be fascinating to see which way or how her, her foundation goes and the sort of progress it makes. Because as we kind of point out in as a little sidebar to one to this feature, there's we give examples of other other um, organisations which have been there to kind of help young musicians, um, and most of them are doing pretty good things. And they kind of not, very few of them kind of disappear without trace. So mm. there is there is good hope here. And obviously the need as well. I think there was recent research by the um, the BPI which showed. Uh, that music education provision in state schools is down 21% over the last five years. So that's, you know, that's quite a pressing need if, you know, we want to still have music and at the heart of education. Yeah, but it's a shame that these have to plug those sorts of gaps, isn't it? And you want want these things to kind of be in addition to not sort of plugging the gap from what should be there already in the curriculum. But Mm. it's great that she's doing it. Mm. And also, I think a big part of it, and perhaps for some of the other foundations as well, is finding the other great communicators, the great teachers, the people who are going to really inspire and helping them in a way to be even more empowered mm-hmm. yeah at my re- my son's recent um school concert the the staff room gave a, a performance that was the the staff room choir mm-hmm. oh, it was yeah. brilliant just and the headmaster was there and i think he was completely out of his his comfort zone but he was adamant that he was going to be taking part you know just to leave from the front and that was you know so inspiring Mm. more music for all absolutely (laughs) talking of which let's have a really rather good recording Michael tell me about it so our recording of the month for the January issue is an epic recording of Handel Sampson this is coming to us from uh, John Button a Dunedin consort but not only them it's a whole host of brilliant soloists like Joshua Ellicott Hugo Hymas Jess Dandy Matthew Brooke Mary and Sophie Bevan Fleur Wynne very 
you know, massive cast, actually. And what he's doing with this and what they're doing is trying to show the range of, of choirs that there might have been in the 18th century. So this may not be how it was originally envisaged, or it might be. They're not really sure. So what they've done is they've recorded it twice. Uh, so the CD version, which we review here, is the version of full chorus and soloists. But they've also recorded it with one to a part uh, chorus as well, which you can get as a download in addition. So you can hear both both sides of, of that sort of argument, which is kind of fascinating. Let's hear a little bit of it then. Let's hear a bit now. That was uh, Joshua Ellicott singing uh, the air Total Eclipse from Handel Samson, which is out on Lynn Records. Uh, it's John Button, the Dunedin consort. Right, so we've covered the front of the magazine, and then you find the, the reviews kind of nearer the back. And then in the middle, somewhere in between them, is a feature we've put together about different types of conductors. Now, we all kind of, we're all fan- fanatics of the concert hall here. Um, and one of the kind of things which I always enjoy when I go to a concert is actually just looking at the conductor and admiring or not so their different styles. Um, but of course, what's fascinating about the conductors is how their roles have changed over the year and how their personas have changed. And so although this is a sort of fairly light-hearted look at 15 categories of conductor, it also traces in a way how the persona of the conductor has changed from the, the fiery types of the past who wouldn't be able to get away with that these days, these sort of control freaks and these nutters who would hire and fire at will. Um, then you have the the more genteel types, the gentle ones, these days we have um, we have the communicators. We have considerably more women on the podium these days as well, um, and it's so we've, we've taken each sort of each each category in turn. So, for instance, we've labelled them as the tyrants, singers, dancers, non-movers, those who are kind of stock <laughs> still on the on the podium, and, and taking a look at them different types. It's great fun. It's great fun, I and I, I love that as well. Like <laughs> you know, when you're watching a live performance, just just it makes you know it can make such a big difference to really your impression of the performance actually that almost that visual element and I find that fascinating. What I think is really fascinating here is that his some of these kind of names are from long long time ago so sort of you have to rely on just hearsay from people who've actually seen them to hear about some of these character traits but there's actually quite good documented um evidence in terms of recordings and things like that. So, for instance, Toscanini, who is famous for his appalling temper, there are actually one or two recordings of him just losing it in rehearsal. Um, and you can hear him just go ballistic. Mm. Um, there's l- some lovely footage as well by um, Adrian Bolt on TV. And of course, although he was sort of in his heyday right at the beginning of the 20th century, he'd lived to a great old age until he was 1983. And so he was giving interviews in the sort of 70s and 80s, remembering some of these great names of yesteryear. And that's fascinating. You can just you can find it on YouTube, etc. And it's sort of a real insight to 
how how the art of conducting has changed over the over mm. the years. Definitely, and I often wonder why people choose to sit in the sort of the choir stalls behind the orchestra. But actually, it would give you a great sort of view of the conductor's face and expressions, all those things. Whereas if you're behind them, you might see their arms flailing and maybe some funny movements, but you don't get to see the the face. So maybe I'll sit there at some point. And... I think one thing which really tell this really tells you though is that there's more than one way to skin a cat, as it were. <laughs> is that so many conductors had got brilliant results in so many different ways. I mean, Toscanini and Reiner scared the life out of their musicians, whereas Barbarolli and Pierre Monteur were absolutely lovely to them. All great conductors, so you don't have to do it one way. Mm. You did, and even conductors that you know might have had what you might call an unorthodox technique. You know, you watch them; they might be really dancing around or jumping or hardly making any movements, and you think. Well, how on earth? How on earth can the musicians be picking up anything yeah. from them? But actually, sometimes the most unorthodox techniques are the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. <laughs> what I don't buy into is this kind of. You often hear this comment that all car- uh, conductors are le- less characterful these days than they used to be. I don't think that's I true. I don't think that's true. I really don't. And I think you as well. Like the, the more you go to concerts, the more you think, well, that has a huge impact, really. And there's such a variety of styles and approaches and sounds that I, I don't buy that argument. There might either. be different yeah. types of character these days than there used to be, but I don't think they're characterless. Mm. So. so let's hear what conductors can do by moving on to our first listen section. Before we kick off with sharing our favourite new recordings, we'd like to tell you about how you can get involved in sharing your musical discoveries with us and fellow readers. That can all be done by going to our Facebook page where you'll find an area called The Listening Room where we like to share ideas. Um, We'll pitch in with our own ideas, readers do as well, and it's a very good conversation. We enjoy going there and hope to see you there as well. Plus, you can hear our choice of the latest recordings on our Apple Music Playlist Curator page. Once you're there, just look for The Playlist. It's that simple. And don't forget, if you send us what you've been listening to at music at classical-music.com, you could be in with a chance of being published on our Music to My Ears page in the magazine itself. Hurrah! So, what have we been listening to? Well, we're talking about conductors just now. So, well, I'm going to start off by recording by one of my favourite current conductors, and that is the American Joanne Folletta. Um, her recording is called Forgotten Treasures, and in it she conducts the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. And before I tell you what it is, I'm going to play a little bit of it for you. Before I tell you what that was, um, I'm going to do a bit of a blind listening test here. Which composer do you think that was there? I'm going to say Vorschach. Well, my money is on Brahms. Yes, I can see why you say both of those, because they do it does sound <laughs> like, like those two. Um, it sounds like Vorschach's Slavonic Dances or Brahms's Hungarian Dances. It does, yeah. Actually, it's by a composer called Leo Weiner, who is uh, Austrian, similar, a little bit later than Brahms and Vorschach, but not that much. Now, this disc is called Forgotten Treasures, and it's... Um, 
composers who'll be you might might not might know the name pretty well, but probably not much of their music. So we have Schmidt, Weiner, Martucci, Pizzetti, and Cherepnin. All names you kind of recognise mm. in the catalogue, but mm. possibly don't know the music that well. It, a lot of it is sort of kind of late romantic stuff. Um, it's beautifully played by the Buffalo Philharmonic. It's from a series of concerts, um, so it's all live performances, and it's just a nice introduction to kind of four or five composers. Once you hear it, you think. Ooh, I want to hear a bit more of them. Um, the Viner, as I say, is very, very Brahmsian, very Borjakian, but the, the Pizzetti and Martucci reminds me actually a little bit of a sort of kind of Respighi, perhaps, um, almost kind of, I don't know if you know, Wolf Ferrari, that sort of late Italian feel. Absolutely mm. gorgeous stuff. Mm. I'm definitely going to be borrowing that. I think that looks sounds like a great one. It's a great, it's a great disc. I really enjoyed it. That was Viner's Hungarian Folk Dance Suite, um, and that disc, and that was the Presto, which is the final of the four movements, and this disc, by the way, is on Bo Fleuve Records, which um, sadly I don't think is streamed yet, so you're going to have to buy the hard copy. So, um, Michael, what about yours? Um, I've been listening to this fabulous disc called Jupiter, and it's actually the name of the group performing. So this is a super group, if you like, classical musicians, uh, started by the uh, lutenist Thomas Dunford. So the group includes people like uh, the mezzo Leo de Sandra. Um, it includes uh, Bruno Philippe, uh, the cellist, uh, Peter Whelan, bassoonist, uh, Jean Rondeau on harpsichord and organ. It's a proper super group of artists, and it's all uh, Vivaldi, the programme. And we're going to hear uh, a piece from uh, Judita Triumphans, uh, which is Amate, Face et angus. So that's the brilliant Leia de Sandra there uh, singing with the group Jupiter. They all have their moments to shine, but she is an absolute standout on the disc. I was about to say, is it all that acrobatic? <laughs> Not quite, no. It's a mixture of uh, concertos and airs, so you get you get sort of vocals, but you also get instrumental pieces as well. It's a real, really lovely album. Excellent. And Rebecca, what have you brought for us? I bought something a bit different from that. I've brought a disc called uh, The Etudes Project, Volume 1, and that is on Sono Luminous, and it's features the pianist Jenny Lynn at the start of a big journey uh, to record a lot of solo piano etudes, which is a, a form that kind of you can trace through keyboard history, really. And um, there are famous examples here um, by Debussy, Scriabin, Rachmaninoff, uh, Messiaen, Ligeti, um, more recently Philip Glass. And But what she has also done is um, has a whole batch of new etudes by a group of they're called the Iceberg Composers. And she hasn't really asked them to respond to these um, sort of more well-known etudes, but just to to write their own. And then she's kind of paired them. So the whole disc, it's sort of these little pairings and couplings of etudes in a huge variety of styles. And I've chosen one that is by the American composer um, Ruth Crawford Seeger, who was alive from 1901 to 1953. And this is the study in mixed accents from 1930, which has been described as a, a modernistic minute waltz. And I think we're going to hear a clip from that now. (laughs) 
So that was the study in mixed accent by Ruth Crawford Seeger, um, played by Jenny Lynn. And um, we're just saying it makes it makes you feel a bit a bit seasick that one really, but <laughs> <laughs> it's great fun actually. It's just lovely. trying to trying to, to great fun to listen to definitely. definitely. So there you go. There's three bits of listening which we hope will grab your ears in one way or the other. And I'm afraid to say that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. Our fantastic jingles were composed by Christopher Maxim. And our podcast is produced here by in Bristol by the fantastically patient Ben Newart and Jack Bateman. So it's goodbye from me, Rebecca and Michael. Um, and then it'll be a different lot of the BBC Music Magazine team coming next month to talk about our February issue. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. The BBC Music Magazine podcast.